Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hey everyone, this is Daniel Paris, a host of the New Books Network. I'm delighted today to have as my guest Andrew Monaghan, uh, author of Dealing with the Russians, a new book that just came out uh, from Polity Press. Uh, Andrew is at the Royal United Services Institute in London and one of England's leading Russian specialists and the author of several, several other books on uh, Russia. Uh, Andrew, thank you so much for joining me. Daniel, thank you for having me on the show. It's a pleasure to be here. So as a, a historian of the Soviet Union myself and someone who keeps uh, track of, of, of what's going on in our current relations, I was really quite struck by the, uh, the, the premise of your book uh, that lays out quite uh, in a straightforward fashion that we're still, it's, it's sort of like the adage about the generals who fight the last war, that uh, after, call it a half century of conflict uh, between the Soviet Union and the Western powers, that conflict sort of went away when the Soviet Union went away uh, and uh, for a decade or so, depending on how you view it. But after Crimea, uh, the Russian uh, return to Crimea, it, it, Cold War appears to be back. And, and that seems to be both the problem and the opportunity from the way you present it. That is, the West is still approaching this um, uh, relationship. Uh, using old tools, old tool sets, old institutions, old guide uh, frameworks, and that you're really calling for a uh, a new approach that is is more up to date. Is that a, a fair way to characterize it? I think that's a that's a very accurate way of putting it. I I entirely agree that the that the tool set that we we use, the mental tool set that we use, is 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 out of date actually, um, and it's been used so often that it's become. Uh, second nature has become very, how could I put it, close to comfortable mental furniture. We sort of slip into these arbitrary comparisons with some stage during the Cold War or or these very um, emotional analogies. And I think it doesn't help us to understand the nature of uh, the current situation or, or the, the challenges that, that, that Russia poses to the Euro-Atlantic community, to the UK, to to the US. So, so the book is arguing for um, to, to move on effectively from the 20th century and to look at Russia as a, as a 21st century uh, challenge. That's what I'm trying to get at in the text. And what, and what is, is interesting, and this, this book will be of significant interest to, to policy people, is that there's a lot of nuts and bolts, institutions, uh, offices of the, of uh, the NATO, offices of the UK, uh, of the United States, uh, and it, it's uh, it's you know for people who are from our side of the pond, from Washington D.C. policy people really uh, kind of uh, benefit from from this account. But from my perspective as a historian, it it also comes down to language, even the very terms that we're using. 
Uh, and you make a big deal about this, which I think is good, you know, deterrence and Cold War, all of these terms themselves, which people might use casually, actually have loaded meetings. And it's time even not just to say, hey, this office or this particular policy, but even the terminology that we use, you have to think about it before applying it for a 21st, applying 20th century terminology to a 21st century relationship. Absolutely, I couldn't couldn't agree more. As a as someone who was educated as a historian originally myself, I I, I come back to the use of history in the book, and uh, one of the things I hope that, that that comes through is that history isn't particularly about just drawing analogies. It's actually about how to think through and how to use empathy and so on to understand uh, to understand how others may may see the world. That doesn't mean we necessarily agree with them, of course. But right at the heart of this is terminology, and yeah. Um, and how we go about understanding uh, the, the nature of the questions that are being posed of us. So for, I, you mentioned Cold War, but there's also a number of others that we talk about with regards to Russia, the sort of abstraction of the challenge, um, hybrid warfare, for instance, or measures short of war, which don't really describe the nature of the problem very satisfactorily. I mean, I, I do hope that the book is, while, it, yes, it's, it is aimed in some senses at, at policymakers, I Really, the, the the idea in my mind when I was writing this was to pro, was to provide a, um, a a a text that the 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 interested individual could read. So it's it's it's, it's certainly for policymakers, but I want to I wanted to start right at the beginning and and draw people into it as wide an audience as possible. I think if if our leaders are going to talk about great power competition for the twenty first century, I think it's something that. Uh, the, the what can I call it, the the voting public ought to be um, ought to be thinking about also so it's it's intended to be nice and broad in that sense uh, while also trying to, to to guide towards a bit of, of policy and, and and thinking. I think you uh, you uh, it's a very optimistic you speak very highly of the voting public uh, that uh, <laughs> that you set a fairly high bar for the voting public. Uh, well, I I am uh, I am encouraged by your optimism. Uh, I I would say uh, that yes, those who, people in the kind of the reading public or uh, uh, who who see through the fact that a policy and institutions uh, need to you understand need to really understand what is underneath them. Uh, that broader sense of politics of uh, the the public it may not be every single last voter, but uh, a a good number of them would want to. Understand, and frankly, the same issue could arise with the relationship uh, of the West to China, to uh, areas in the Middle East. We we have a set of broadly speaking post World War II institutions, uh, and set up in post World War II. Uh, they're literally buildings in Washington D.C. and buildings in London with staffs and and budgets and so forth. Uh, and uh, are they are they right for the times? And that's uh, that's a, a question of a very popular or broad interest. And your answer is at least in regard to the Russians. Uh, Showing their age, I would say, would be a delicate way of putting it, uh, and that you you think uh, kind of nudge them. Let, let's go over some of the, not just the mention, notion of Cold War, but you mentioned some of the uh, the doctrines. Uh, you know, we, we have removed the tanks, and we are not worried about the Fulda Gap anymore. Uh, but the the basic concept, uh, even if the the places have remained of that type of approach, remains in regard to whether it's NATO planning or the United States or the UK. And it, it, it just seems very out of date is your point. And how, can you give some other examples of that might, uh, you know, uh, grab readers and say, yeah, boy, that, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. We're still playing from a 60 year old playbook. 
Sure. I think, I mean, I just wanted to agree with your point earlier about it being about the, the nature of how this reaches the broader audience. And you mentioned China and so on. It's, it's noticeable that people are using the same language with regards to China currently. We've got a whole new discussion of cold, new Cold War with China. Um, and mm-hmm. it's, it's, very, it's very noticeable also. One of the things I do address in the book is how, how we pick up concepts that we've used from one part of the world and we impose them on another part. A completely different part, incidentally, which which demonstrates also a very different set of characteristics. So, there is how China thinks about going to war. People have talked about, or how China defends itself, for instance, is terms have, have been developed for that that were then imposed on Russia recently, and we now have this sort of so a generic lexicon to talk about all sorts of wide, uh, wide ranging, and different different challenges. Um, but but when it comes back to it, and thinking about the new Cold War, why? Why should why should we be wary of these these points? Well, I, I was uh, thinking about how best to describe this, and it's a dangerous line, of course, because it's a bit of an analogy. But uh, I was reading a book recently about um, the memoirs of a, of a senior Allied general in the, in the Second World War, uh, and when he was uh, going back to war in in the Second War, uh, he found himself stopping off and bill- being billeted in the early part of the war in the same places that he'd been billeted in the First World War. I thought this was very interesting because it demonstrates to us how how things can change dramatically because, of course, the Second World War was fundamentally different to the First in how it evolved, how it wound through, and, and so on, and, of course, how it, how it ended. So this is the first part of how we think about history. Um, the second part is that the, our societies are fundamentally different now. If you think back to the 1980s and, and so on, you have a, a mobilized society that pays much more in defense in many ways, across, particularly across Europe, um, than, than to do now. In fact, we have demilitarized societies in many ways. So our societies have changed so fundamentally that these old comparisons are no longer relevant. And then finally, the geography, of course. It's, 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 uh, Europe looks so different to how it did during the, during the Cold War era. Uh, yeah, the notion is, that the Baltic republics would be part of NATO and that NATO yeah. would be a right up against the underbelly of, of modern yes. Russia is, uh, uh, you know, from 30 years ago, 40 years yes. ago, utterly inconceivable. Yes. And I mean, the idea that, you know, for instance, we'd be talking, as we have been for a bit over 12, uh, 10 or 12 years now, that Ukraine and Georgia could become members of NATO. I mean, that demonstrates to us how the geography of Europe has shifted. Um, and what we're talking about is Poland, the Czechia, um, Hungary, and so on, all all being member states of NATO. Romania, Bulgaria, I mean, the list, the list goes on. It's, NATO has more than doubled in size. This changes the infrastructure and the geography of, of, of Europe fundamentally. The most obvious example about why this makes it different, of course, is, is that Kaliningrad, the Russian exclave, in some senses is surrounded by NATO member states. Or... From the other way around, Latvia, Lithuania, and Estonia are are are, are right there, surrounded by by uh, Russia. So, so that's that's why the nature of, of history is so important to understand history as as, as continuity and change. If you see yeah, I mean, I, I don't want to get too far off of your book into uh, other interests, but the the uh, French Anglo defense of Poland was not feasible in 1939, uh, and the a NATO defense of the Baltics, is it, is it feasible in 2020? Uh, I don't know. 
I don't well, I think, know. I mean, this is this is part again. Of, this is why I think actually your comment is is absolutely relevant to the book because the book tries to talk about what things like deterrence and defence and dialogue might mean. So mm-hmm. your 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 question comes right to how could we defend uh, the, uh, our allies in in Eastern Europe, Central Europe, even. Um, and that's Not that's part easily. of nature. Not easily is exactly the question. So what do we mean by deterrence? Mm-hmm. What do we you know are we are we using deterrence as a synonym for defence, or are we using it as a synonym for reassurance? Um, and therefore, also, it's 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 how we are about understanding the the other in this. And of course, this is Russian thinking, because I'm although we've people have talked about exercising it and thought about it for for, for already six or seven years or more. Um, personally, I don't think that the Russian military particularly seeks to invade and and, and occupy the Baltic states. That's my own personal view. Uh, many many have sought to run run temporary you know uh, exercises to test that and have said that the Baltic states would be very difficult to defend. Yes. I personally, that's that that odd thing about deterrence, which I try to explore in the book, is that you have to be in the thinking of your adversary to know what and it is you're trying to deter. And here, here is a, a you know a good example of an old paradigm misapplied to a modern situation: economic warfare or economic engagement or information warfare, information engagement play a much greater role. You don't need a main battle tank for those things. As a matter of fact, a main battle tank gets in the way of uh, economic uh, engagement uh, or information engagement, it may be sufficient to uh, pull those levers. That is, policy can be defined in terms and goals can be defined in those levers rather than in terms of physical occupation of of territory. I think that's I think that's a very fair point. I I would maybe add a a couple of I suppose footnotes to that is that first of all that um, the Russians tend to view things in a rather different way. So economic measures like sanctions, for instance, we would consider to be measures short of war as a sort of an attempt at deterrence and and so on. Whereas I think uh, for many Russian defence thinkers and security thinkers, economic sanctions are are statecraft as part of warfare. So there's mm-hmm, a mm-hmm. there's a there's a slight gap there in understanding. The second is is of course while we do tend to talk about Russian measures short of war, interference in elections and so on. Um, and understandably so. Uh, what we don't tend to talk about is the the, the rebuilding of um, Russian combat capability uh, that's very visible in Syria and very explicitly made in Syria, uh, but also the the combat that's taken place in Ukraine. Um, mm-hmm. So we, we end up talking about these you know hybrid measures, for instance, and we focus a lot on uh, election and, and, and domestic political interference. Understandable. We but we cannot at the same time overlook the the, the ramifications of of and the consequences for the use of, of, of military force as a, as a tool of policy. Remind me the name of the gap. It begins with an S that has replaced the Fulda gap. It's in your book, uh, but I recall well, that. Uh, um, yes, the, the Suvalki gap is what people call it. Yes, that's it. Um, yes. And I, I must admit, I'm not a, I, some of my, my friends and colleagues are, are, are focusing on this. I, I don't think that this is a particular... Um, a particular point of focus for for Russia. I, I can understand its regional and, and local importance. Of course, I can. Um, but I think that if if there is a dash made through the, the Suvalki gap, we have we have a very serious um, wider problem. So it's it's an indication of something broad. So uh, you know the, the the sort of the first part of the book, and to some extent, you know the premise is uh, summarized by the old adage that the, the generals are fighting the last war, the, the privates end up sacrificing in, in the current war. So the, the generals are, you know, there's a lot of this old infrastructure um, and you think it serves serves the West 
ill. It also, to some extent, interestingly, it serves Russia ill as well because uh, it creates lack of communication. That's, the two sides are talking past one another. What, what what's what's the more positive agenda? You know, where let's shift to what you suggest would uh, be more uh, appropriate in both our understanding of of Russia intentions and making sure the Russians don't misunderstand us. Again, uh, we don't we don't think a lot. We don't think of economic sanctions as a, a, an act of war. But if the Russians do, we need to be aware that they're going to interpret it that that way. I may have exaggerated a bit. But uh, so what 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 is the the positive agenda and uh, that would get you know, uh, readers will want to say, okay, this is a good go forward plan that's that's outlined in your book. First of all, this is one of the the the, the difficulties of writing about Russia at the moment is is the the how can I put it this the shaping of a of a positive agenda because mm-hmm. most of the, the difficulties are are actually based on policy disagreements and long standing policy disagreements. So, I mean, almost across the board, London and Moscow disagree. I mean, yes, there are, there are some places for for conversation, nuclear uh, nuclear questions, and so on. Um, but 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 on almost everything, European security architecture in Ukraine, um, you could talk about uh, what happened in, in in Iraq and Syria. Uh, you could talk about a variety of questions, many of which you'd find London or Washington uh, on one side and, and and Moscow on the other. Same for Brussels and, and Moscow. So so there's a there's a very large there's a very large pile of, of what I would what I call policy rubble uh, over which we will have to cross. To, to begin to, to create dialogue with the Russians, um, and I think really that what we're going to have to do is is think of dialogue in the in the in the longer term. There won't be a, some grand bargain, in my view, as I try to argue in the book. No grand bargain over European security um, and so on, because the two sides are fundamentally opposed. Where I think it is important to to be uh, to be reaching out is to actually have um, what I what I think of as non-strategic points of contact. And that is a uh, slightly lower level than the senior politicians. Um, practical questions, technocratic questions, bureaucratic questions. Um, and I think here there are some aspects where we can find some overlap. Uh, for instance, I, I point a bit in the book at things that you know, when, if we look to the future, there are, there are problems that are emergent problems. Uh, they're new 21st century problems in some senses. And we're looking at things like the impact of climate change, uh, the impact of demography. Uh, these these are things that I think are, are places where we could start to have some some form of practical technical exchanges. By that I mean that the the European population, in many ways, is 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 in a similar situation to the Russian one. It becomes it becomes uh, elderly. Uh, mm-hmm. There's also a drive towards urbanisation. So there are similar technical problems. It's much the same with with climate change. Now, London and Moscow may disagree on on the politics of climate change, but one of the things they see uh, they certainly face in reality is the practicality of climate change. And Moscow sees this as much as anybody else does. Yearly, they have big floods and fires, um, and in fact, we're seeing this at the moment while people talk about uh, coronavirus and the oil price war. It's also notable that Mr. Putin is meeting uh, online, of course, meeting uh, local regional authorities to cope with fires and flooding. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So there are there are areas which are not on the same agenda um, where we can actually start to rebuild some form of contact. Because as I say, I, I, I think it's going to be difficult to find any sense of, of substantive uh, 
cooperation over over the old agenda. And there's no reason why why the old agenda should not continue to be um, debated. We do have these. The institutions I'm more familiar with on the U.S. side, but the institutions, uh, some of them are still around from 20 or 30 years ago. The funding institutions that that tried to support these dialogues, the the institutions that sent me to the Soviet Union uh, 30 years ago. Uh, to the best of my knowledge, they don't exist anymore because they just faded away when the, the Cold War faded away. And uh, or if they do, they're a shell of themselves. So, you know, how, how do we start a new uh, and again, I could use the phrase very lightly, which would be incredibly insensitive to the Russians, a new Marshall Plan for fixing this problem. But again, whereas in the West, the Marshall Plan would have been viewed as a, a, a positive from the Russian perspective, the Marshall Plan was a way of, of uh, encircling Russia in a hostile way. So even there, the terminology is is uh, the terminology from the past haunts any effort to responsibly manage a, a, a current relationship. So I don't even know what words to use. But, uh, you know, wh- what are the what are some of the institutions um, that uh, and, and I should tell war- readers, and I think it's actually quite you, you do have a bit of a UK bias. You are obviously based there. And it is uh, it does reference NATO and U.S. policy institutions and mechanics and, and, and uh, statements. But there's a, a, a it is a very interesting uh, perspective. Now, here's where you, you will get a little bit offended. Please don't. Uh, but you acknowledge yourself. That the Russians have no longer consider the UK <laughs> a serious foe. So they spend less time on you and you admit that out front. I, I didn't want to rub salt into your wounds, but it does, I think, give you and in the American reader in particular, a view from the sidelines, please don't be offended, a view from the sidelines, which is actually very useful in highlighting how outdated some of the US institutions or US thinking might be and and to some extent also the Russians because you guys are on the sideline to some extent now. I think there's there's a lot to that not offended in the slightest as you as you know I I wrote most of it and when when you have to come down to writing it you 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 absorb it. I mean I I, I would frame it slightly differently though in terms of what the book tries to do because yes of course I'm 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 writing a little bit for a uh, a London audience, but it's really for a Euro Atlantic audience. And in many ways, the the British experience, London's experience with Moscow, has been a very interesting uh, lens through which to view the wider Euro Atlantic relationship with Russia. Um, and that, so in many ways, the British experience is not is not terribly different to that of Brussels uh, or or Washington. Slightly more vivid terms sometimes. That's true. Mm-hmm. Um, but also, it, it's a reminder to other uh, other states that that you know that, that London also should, in my view, be playing more of a role in this. And in many ways, I think that London has actively uh, stood back over a number of years, possibly over the last decade, um, uh, and that's why Moscow doesn't view it as being a terribly important interlocutor. Not only because they've had serious disagreements, but because London hasn't always taken a, a very prominent role in the relationship. And I, I was trying to encourage um, the British authorities to do to do that a little more. I also think that the structures of of how we go about rebuilding uh, our, our our way of dealing with the Russians it's very similar in London to in in Washington in some senses. Um, there's an effort it needed to rebuild um, the links between uh, State state uh, policy making on the one hand, and non-state Russia expertise. I think there is there is this is this has evolved quite a lot over the last decade or so, but there is a need to reunify that 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 knowledge better than than has been the case in the last 
five or six years. I, I keep waiting for the phone to ring and uh, <laughs> calling me yeah. back, but uh, <laughs> yeah. it's, yeah. I stare at the phone and it's awfully quiet. Yeah. Uh, I think you're right. I think uh, you're right. Um, <laughs> <laughs> my, so, many, he, many of... Go on. Go on. Yeah. I mean, I was many, just many going to talk... The, Many of the people who in my who left Russian studies and Soviet studies when the Soviet Union collapsed, you know, uh, it, uh, the reason I'm on this podcast, as it were, is uh, remain a very, very keen interest. And he, here's a, a good during the Cold War, there weren't too many business people who were involved in engaging the Soviet Union for, for obvious reasons, because it, there, there wasn't much there. But there, there is actually now a, a, a large coterie of people, I think, like myself, who have a keen interest on the relationship between Russia and the West and defining that, uh, but we're no longer part of government. We're no longer part of the official Soviet studies or Russian studies apparatus. And I, I do sometimes wonder when I see policy statements coming out from governments that saying, uh, where did you speak to your, you know, your, your Russia hands uh, before you made that statement? And I suspect the answer is they didn't because those Russian hands didn't exist because they, they're not there aren't as many of them in the government as there used to be on the U.S. side. And that even I can observe, and, and it is dismaying to me. I think it's true. I, I do think things are evolving a little bit. There is more effort now uh, being made both in Washington and in London to, uh, to, to bring more people into the discussion, to, to, to have more um, government servants who are thinking about Russia explicitly. So I, I think that's beginning to evolve. But I do think there's a there's a what I think is a, a disconnect bit between some of the, the aspects of, of non, uh, non-government expertise and, and how that might feature into policymaking. And that's one of the points that, that has been evolving and, and, uh, uh, and developing since, since 2013, when, when in many ways there, was, there were very few indeed in government looking at, uh, looking at Russia. That's, that, that has changed. Hmm. Yes. Let's turn to that, which is Crimea. That's really the turning point in your book, which the light is flipped on and you can see it with Crimea – you see that, uh-oh, uh, the light's on and we don't have an effective means uh, to deal with this, this new, and we'll call it, whether you call it rising or uh, returning entity. Um, and I, I take it that was sort of almost the, the, uh, the reason that you ended up writing this particular book was the out the absence of clear policy institutions, framework, and methods of engagement after uh, uh, Crimea. Is that a, a fair summary? I think that's a, that's a, that's a fair summary, yes. I, I mean, it, for me, the interesting point about, I mean, there's much to say about Crimea. Um, the first point would be, though, to say that Crimea puts us into almost, puts the Euro-Atlantic community in Russia almost into different time zones. Because uh, what I mean by that is that, that the... The Atlantic community tends to look at Russia, I mean, this is in, in Washington and in London and often in, in NATO also, as having been reawoken to Russia in 2014. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Then people track back a bit and they say, well, this happened in Georgia in 2008. Then maybe there were the energy disputes in, in 2006, 2009. And, and there's a certain, oh, and we mustn't forget um, the poisoning of Litvinenko and we mustn't do this and we mustn't forget that. But really what we're doing is starting from 2014, tracking back to to find the origins of our dispute with Russia on the one hand that's one time zone uh, on the the Russian time zone is a very different one and it goes right back to the early 1990s uh, and you find there the the, the rollout of the, of a series of persistent Russian arguments that 
um, whether one agrees with them or not, the persistent arguments that, that NATO should A, no longer exist, uh, B, shouldn't have enlarged, and C, should uh, and C should now be considering winding itself up because it's more of a challenge to the current environment than a, than a, than a, than a benefit. And so you actually have a very different trajectory in Moscow that you could say starts with NATO's Kosovo campaign in, two, in 1999 that then rolls through um, Af- the war in Afghanistan, 2001 onwards, but particularly picks up speed from 2002-2003 with, uh, with the invasion of Iraq and, and, and the US withdrawal from the, um, the anti-ballistic missile treaty. So you have two very different time zones taking shape there. And this means that in many ways, uh, Moscow and, and the Euro-Atlantic community live in, in, on, on different planets, not to say different galaxies, which makes dialogue so difficult and deterrence really difficult because I'm not sure we really understand each other. And where we do understand each other, we disagree fundamentally. And, and I wonder if, again, as a historian, I find that the calmest period of relations, and again, this can be a historical simplification, but I wonder if it isn't helpful. And I, I make this argument in print. Uh, I've made this argument in print as well recently, is that a more of a 19th century game of chess, which ends frequently in draws, is a healthier environment. That is the, the, the great powers, balance of powers in Europe. Uh, ni- the 19th century paradigm is healthier than the 20th century and the way the 21st century uh, 21st century is shaping up, which is uh, uh, ideologically driven. And in an ideological conflict, there are no draws. There are only winners and losers. And that's kind of a controversial statement. I'm, I'm making it, not, not necessarily you. And so you, you can dispute it or, or not accept it or ignore it. But uh, that, that to me seems to be a more stable framework for, as you put it, entities that fundamentally disagree on principled issues, uh, that, uh, that a, a better... Uh, approach there, uh, then uh, provoking is is uh, maybe you know forms of stalemate or, or draw chess draws. So uh, see that same issue because I, I too don't see the resolution to these underlying conflicts. And for me, the underlying conflict is Russia and the West. The relationship between Russia and the West. This is a tension that's lasted for three three centuries, coming up on four centuries as to you know, uh, are we all moving in the same direction or are we not? And if we are moving in the same direction, boy, it's with fits and starts and awfully slow. If we're not, then a, um, a, a stalemate or a draw type framework is a lot less dangerous than a ideological cage fight battle to the death. And that's, you know, uh, maybe... Uh, I, I don't, I'm not, you know, that's not what your book is about, but I, I'm just highlighting that as a way of interpreting these mechanisms of managing a conflict, which your book is about, uh, that if we can get, if we can get to a draw, that's not a bad outcome. I mean, I think this is, your point about ideology is a very interesting one, uh, because the first, the first set of arguments about whether we're in a new Cold War or not, uh, which came about in the early to mid 2000s, to, just to give you an idea of how, how often this is echoed. Um, the first time this came up, people refuted it by saying there is no ideological element to it. So it's not like <laughs> and I think this and I think this is a very interesting because it helps us to understand change and continuity. Because I mean, when I first started arguing against this in, in well several years ago now, ideology was still not really part of it. It was okay, yes, there's a question of different values. We understand that, the the you know, the idea of democracy embattled in Russia. 
the idea that the transition to, to democracy in Russia perhaps hadn't, hadn't succeeded and was being reversed, but it wasn't an ideological conflict. But then one of the points I make in, in the book, so and I'll, I'll quote it because I think it's worth doing now given the current environment, I, I point out that, um, uh, well, <laughs> just after he had stopped being vice president, um, Joe Biden said that the Russian government is brazenly assaulting the foundations of Western democracy around the world. It has sought to weaken and subvert Western democracies from the inside by weaponizing information, cyberspace, energy, and corruption. So that, to me, it, it, when I read that the idea is assault, brazenly assaulting the foundations of Western democracy, perhaps reintroduces an ideological aspect to this. And uh, and I, I I think there is it's very important to 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 make that explicit so that people realize the trajectory that we're on because the ideological aspect will will create um, a number of very uh concrete orthodoxies that will shape our own discussion of russia which may not be satisfactory yeah and they again there're no draws in an ideological battle you either win or you lose because you're you're dealing with truths and people take you know it's it's uh so i i'm already have to be cautious because in the u.s uh again uh these truths are held uh very very uh uh sharply so this is this is the struggle so i uh you know what i i, I would you know encourage readers to refresh their knowledge of this struggle with uh, with Andrew Monaghan's dealing with the Russians. It's like a primer for the understanding, thinking person's understanding of the institutions, the language, the ideas, and the history with a real focus on what's happened over the past, call it five, six years as we go forward and uh, try to, and again, here, come up with a policy. Unfortunately, there are many policies, whether you're, whether it's London, Brussels, uh, Washington D.C. or Moscow. So, uh, but at least to keep track of how these these uh, debates are going, um, uh, this is a very helpful tool and kind of uh, uchebnik, if I may, for uh, keeping up to date up to date with the various with uh, the, uh, this the this stage of our relationship uh, with the Russians. Andrew, do you want to kind of um, End it with with uh, I hope a positive outlook, but but if not, then at least a suggestive outlook that uh, as to uh, you know that there is some some uh, light at the end of the tunnel, uh, or or if not, what it ought to be. Well, thank you first of all, Daniel, for for um, inviting me to join you. It's been a pleasure to talk through these these questions with you. What I what I really want to do with the book is to urge people to to or to offer uh, a fresh way of approaching this, because I think. The interesting aspects of coping with uh, the, the current challenge is to think in 21st century terms. And this does pose a whole new agenda in many ways, whether it's about technology, whether it's about, um, as I mentioned earlier, demography and urbanization or the climate. These are, these are very real issues that are right at the top of our, our, our public agenda. And you mentioned earlier um, you know, the right question, probably the right point about, about the voters. But these, these issues are all across the news and they keep coming back to them. I, I really hope that, that by stimulating some, um, perhaps some fresh thinking for policymakers, it would also be of interest to, uh, to the reading public to think about how we go about engaging with this challenge. There's, there is no need for us to end up in, in some uh, systemic ideological struggle to the death. 
uh, but it's going to require a great deal of, of, of fresh thinking, uh, and that that hopefully is is a spur to people uh, when when they when they read this. But I, once again, thank you for, for for allowing me to join you and talk this through. It's been a it's been a pleasure to speak. It has been for me as well. Again, the book is Dealing with the Russians by Andrew Monaghan. Just came out from Polity Press. Uh, and uh, uh, Andrew, thank you so much for being uh, on the New Books Network. Thank you for having me.